to do all of the work around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, you have to be intentional. And if you're not intentional and systematic about it, and if you're not asking yourself the hard questions and wanting to look at the data, you don't make the kind of progress that you need. And I think it really requires leaders to take a stand on it and say this is something that we value at this company, at this organization, at this university. And we want to make sure that we're paying attention to these numbers and to the data and then changing it and doing something about it. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast, Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Dr. Christine Reardon. Dr. Reardon, Chris, is the 10th president of Adelphi University in New York, and she's been in that job for, well, since 2015. She's one of these trailblazers with a strong academic background, has been moved to academic administration over a period of time. But actually, and you'll hear us talk about this in the conversation, she's something of a leadership specialist and guru as well. So it's kind of fun to talk to someone with that background. But I guess as opposed to me, she's actually running something. I just do podcasts and other fun things. But she's running a university. And anyone who's ever thought about that, actually, I'm going to back up. I bet no one's thought about that unless you're an academic to start with. It is one of the absolute toughest jobs out there. I thought about Phil Hanlon, president of Dartmouth College, who is going to be retiring in a year at Dartmouth after a 10-year or so tenure. Actually, one of the first guests of the SIDCast when I first started doing the podcast. It's just a really hard job. And it's a hard job because you have all these constituencies, all these stakeholders that have a lot of power, a lot of influence, and they can resist you. This is the thing that people in business or other walks of life probably don't understand about academic administration. Tenured professors have incredible power. You cannot fire a tenured professor unless they've done something really, 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 really bad. And by implication, you cannot force a tenured professor to do something they don't really want to do. Maybe there's one of when you could put the pressure on someone to teach certain things or maybe take early retirement or what have you, even though that would be rare. But as a group, faculty are very, very powerful. It's a strange, strange business because I think about myself. I don't believe I've got a boss. I'm part of the Tuck Business School at Dartmouth and our dean, a fantastic dean, Matt Slaughter. Well, he's not my boss. Or Phil Hanlon, the president of Dartmouth College. He's not my boss. In a way, you might say, well, this guy, what is he thinking of? But they're not really my boss. Most faculty probably would say some version of what I'm about to say, which is we're our own boss. We're entrepreneurs. We create our own thing, but we do it under the umbrella of a university that we contribute to and that benefits from the work that we do. So it's a really, really tough job. And then add in the fact that she's been president for seven years, but the last couple years plus, the president of a university with COVID, being a faculty member, obviously myself, I've learned a lot about COVID and dealing with COVID. We moved to Zoom. We taught online for over a year and we've moved back, of course, over the past year to live in person. Hopefully we won't have to go back. But the adjustments, the difficulties, the problem in providing the type of educational experience you really want to, and then add in the fact that, of course, this has affected young people who are particularly vulnerable. And then so mental health issues have skyrocketed. And all that, along with running a business, managing a budget that's in the hundreds of millions to billions of dollars, raising money from donors, creating new programs, building diverse and equitable organizations, all that is part of the job of the president. And so Christine Reardon, 
has a tough job. And I was just so happy when I connected with her and started talking to her. We had a lot to talk about. She's a trailblazer. And also as a woman in administration, academic administration, she's had plenty of challenges along the way. She only hints at a few of them in the podcast, in our conversation. But the truth is, and this is true, I think, for any woman in senior executive positions, they've had to deal with things that people shouldn't have to deal with. Sometimes lack of respect, sometimes implicit or sometimes even explicit harassment. And that's something that people like my recent guest, Shelly Zalis, from the Female Quotient recent guest on the Sidcast, is working so hard to try to address. And so is Chris Reardon. So it's a great conversation. She's done TEDx talks. She's been at senior executive positions in different universities. She's boards of directors as well. She's the full package of talent, passion, and of interests, and of smarts, and of being just really, really interesting. So it's such a treat to have this conversation with Dr. Christine Reardon. Here she is on the SIDCast. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Chris Reardon. Hi there, Chris. Wonderful to be here, Sid. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Always fun to talk to a fellow academic and a fellow leadership guru. So that's great. You've actually done more than just write about it, talk about leadership. You're doing it. So that's what we're going to talk about right now. You're the president of Adelphi University. And I guess it's been about seven years since you started. Why did you take on that job? What was the attraction for you? You know, I've spent half of my career at large publics. I was at the University of Georgia and the University of Kentucky and half at medium privates like Adelphi, so TCU and University of Denver. And when I started getting recruited for presidencies, one of the things that was really important for me was to be able to have an impact on students' lives. I knew that the demands of the job were going to be so great. At the end of the day, I wanted to make sure that I was at a place where it really made a difference in the students. And so Adelphi was that institution. We have so many of our students who are on Pell Grants. Many of them are first-generation students. And as I talked with the students and the faculty, and I talked with alums from the university, we actually helped them. And so as I really was thinking about it, as part of my personal values, the educational mission for Adelphi really aligned with what I wanted to do with my career and what we're accomplishing here. So this idea of having a lot of students that are first generation, I love that idea. I know that lots and lots of universities are trying to do that. That includes Dartmouth and others. Not all have been successful with that. Why is it that that's part of the Adelphi profile? We had started focusing a little bit on diversity and inclusion prior to me coming, but I've been doing diversity and inclusion work since I was a PhD student. It's been a real passion of mine. So we put a major focus on that for the university, and we've really changed the profile of our students as well as our faculty and staff to be more inclusive. And I think that this year's class, less than 50% were white. So we had a majority of non-white for the first time in the history of the university. We're also on the verge of becoming a Hispanic-serving institution, which is really important because when we look at the demographics, we see a trend. So probably within the next two years, 25% of our population will be Hispanic ethnicity. That's interesting. I was talking to actually a couple of different people in podcast. One last season, Valeria Allo, and then this season, Marcela Gomez, who's from Colombia. And what triggered this thought now is around when you describe the students as Hispanic, of course, we all know that encompasses a lot of different cultures and a lot of different countries. So this question might cross over to some work that you've done or studied as well as your experience as president, but I'll make it as an observation, which is the majority looks at a minority and says they're all the same. And within the minority, you know very well that there's all sorts of differences. And so the majority looks at students and they're all Hispanic or they're all black or they're all whatever, but they have different backgrounds. I mean, Cubans are not, Mexicans are not Argentinians. And so I guess I wonder how that plays into both the work you do and maybe even looked at that in some of the diversity work or inclusion work you've done over the years as well. 
It's interesting as the concepts have evolved. I mean, certainly the work that I did 30 years ago as a PhD student looked at the similarity attraction bias that we have a tendency to be attracted to people who are similar to us. And you saw it show up in selection processes. You saw it in terms of promotions and organizations. But, you know, as you think about just exactly as you said, you can be diverse on any element. Race, ethnicity is just one of those dimensions. And so when we really talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and now we're talking about belonging at Adelphi, we're looking at all of the different elements, part of different pieces of people's identity. And how do you create a culture and an environment where people can bring all aspects of their identity to the table, feel included, and feel like they belong and feel like they're having equitable treatment? So we've really done a lot of work to look at the systems and the policies and the practices that we have and really question the inclusionary nature of those. We make sure that we have a lot of different perspectives sitting around the table when we make decisions. We pay a lot of attention to input from our community to really talk about the things that they need. And I think that gets at the point that you're raising is is that if we treat everybody as groups, then we're probably not going to be hitting the different perspectives that people have when they get classified into a category. Right. When you really talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I wrote an article actually for Harvard Business Review, and I basically said diversity is easy, but it's useless if you don't have inclusion. And I think really the hardest work is actually to make sure that people are included. I really like that framing. It's analogous to what a lot of people say about Maybe not everyone understands about talent, which we used to call the war for talent. Now we're dealing with the great resignation. It's really more than that. But what's the point of spending all that time to bring in really good people if you don't give them a chance to actually have an impact? It's kind of analogous to this idea around inclusion, although it's not identical, but it makes perfect sense. It's not enough to just set things in motion. And I would say, Sid, you actually have to be really proactive about being inclusionary. The people who might be quiet when they're sitting around the table, you have to go out of your way and ask them, I really want to hear your opinion. What are your thoughts on this? And I think that if more people really put inclusion on their agenda, then you become very active in terms of asking people for their input, for listening to their ideas, to not coming in with preconceived notions. And I think the important thing to really consider is, is that everybody has a role in inclusivity. And it should be a really proactive part of your behavior, interacting with any group or any individual. The interesting thing is it's not only an appropriate or good thing to do, but it's going to make you operate better. It's going to make you be more successful because you're drawing out the strengths and the background. Even in the classroom, I'm sure you've seen this. When you call on people that are quiet, they're not going to raise their hand. But when you call them, they've got something to say almost always. Absolutely. And nobody would have known it. Nobody would have heard it. And that would have been lost. So it's very important. Yes, absolutely. I agree. So since you started, Chris, I'm sure people have asked you this. What's been the biggest surprise? Yeah, a ton of experience for this job. You were a dean, you were a provost, you've done a lot of stuff, but you cannot predict everything. And so what would be near the top or at the top of the list of things you did not anticipate me have to deal with, good or bad? I often say that university president is almost like a mix between being a CEO. I mean, you know, I'm running a $250 million business with 2,000 employees and 8,000 people that are students. And so it's a very large community, but it's a mix between being a CEO and a mayor of a city. Because in <laughs> essence, you have hotels, you have restaurants, you have retail and your bookstores, you have gyms, et cetera. And I think when you put in that level of complexity, there's always surprises in terms of what you couldn't predict. I think for me, the biggest surprise was the level of crises that occur at universities. 
I remember last year calling up my board chair. Of course, we're in the middle of COVID and the pandemic. And I said, oh, by the way, we have an active shooter situation on campus or around the campus and we're shutting down the university. Everybody's safe. It was at a neighboring shopping mall that was close by. A week later, I call him up and I said, oh, by the way, we're shutting down the university because we have a bomb threat. And I laughed. He rolled out from being board chair. He had gotten to his time. And I said, well, certainly you are probably going to be happy to not be getting calls from me. By the way, I'm (laughs) shutting down the university because of the pandemic, the emerging pandemic, bomb threats. And you get emails and texts in the middle of the night. And of course, when it involves a student or something like that, some kind of student crisis, you're automatically concerned for their health and their welfare and safety. And so I think that probably was the biggest surprise of the job. You know what goes on when you're a faculty member, but the level mm-hmm. is just so high at most universities that I don't think most people realize that. I think that's actually true. And then because you're dealing with young people, there's just a lot more at stake for them in processing difficult things that happen. And of course, COVID's at the top of the list. So let me ask you how that turned out and how you managed it. I guess you went probably remote like everyone else in March of 2020 or close thereafter. You were just doing your class on Zoom? Yes. Presumably. Yes. I actually started planning for the pandemic in January of 2020. We knew that it was emerging because of what was happening with our students who had gone home from China for the holiday break. So I actually put together a threat assessment team in January of 2020. By mid-February of 2020, I actually escalated it to the highest level of threat. And so we began planning for the response to the pandemic from an academic standpoint, as well as from an operational standpoint. So I had business continuity plans in place and updated by the end of February for every single unit. March 10th, actually, we ended up shutting the university down and said until further notice. And of course, that lasted even longer than that. What was interesting for me was I was chair of the board for the Commission of Independent Colleges and Universities for the state of New York. So that's our professional association for the more than 110 private colleges and universities in the state. And as soon as the governor shut down the higher education system, which was towards the end of March, we started planning as a group. And it was by far, I don't want to say it was a highlight of my career, but seeing so many universities come together, plan the restart was just amazing. So I co-chaired a task force with the provost from Cornell. And we basically wanted to put together a document that we could give our governor at the time on how we wanted to restart higher education. So the 110 private institutions were all working very closely together and we were partnering with SUNY to write our document on how we thought we needed to restart. So we had the brightest epidemiologists and physicians and operational people that were putting together this restart plan so that we could all productively begin again in the fall of 2020. We knew that if we were going to succeed as higher education institutions, we needed to partner with each other and really make sure it was going to happen in a way that helped all of us. Yeah, and it's actually pretty smart that you had this early warning system in place from students. I think a lot of universities probably did, but not every university maybe took advantage of that in as quick a time as you may have. Did you have to do a lot with students afterwards? Because they lost a lot. I have taught on Zoom also. I had to learn Zoom pretty quickly. It's good, but it's not the same. And then there's, of course, the mental health issue, which is very big. It was a very big issue for us. Number of, of tragedies more than typical. Was that something you had to really pay a lot of attention to? It was, I think most presidents would say that it was a very challenging time, I think, for all university communities, particularly here in the Northeast. I mean, New York was actually the hardest hit state very early on in the pandemic. And as a result, we saw a lot of families who were impacted, a lot of deaths, a lot of people who were very, very ill. 
And it was before any of the treatment plans came forward. And we had one of our graduate students who was in our graduate nursing program. He contracted COVID through his job and he passed away very early in the pandemic. I had one of my longstanding faculty members, she and her husband both passed away within two weeks of each other. And when you have that level of tragedy and trauma within a community, we absolutely paid a lot of attention to the mental health resources that we were providing. And I would say supplemented those so that everybody in our community, faculty, staff, adjunct faculty, students, families would have resources that they could tap into and they used them. Something that we still pay a lot of attention. That's probably the number one area that I focus on a lot with our student services area is what are we doing in terms of the mental health counseling and support that we have for our students and their families. And appropriately so. It's never been tougher. And even now we're more than two years out, but it's not completely over. I was lucky, you know, I had a disaster epidemiologist on faculty. So I appointed him our university epidemiologist and he was amazing because we held so many different town halls and open forums. I'd like to say that I used to do this exercise. You would appreciate this. When I was teaching executive leadership, I would do a puzzle exercise with my executive MBA students. These are all people who have worked at least 10, 15 years, kind of mid thirties. And it was on strategic planning and I'd give them a child's puzzle. And it was usually like a green frog or a black cat or something to that effect. But I would take away the edges and I would take away the picture. So a hundred piece puzzle, which they should have probably put together in five minutes, would take them usually 20 to 25 minutes because they didn't know what it was and they didn't have the edges around it. Solving the pandemic or understanding the pandemic was like having a picture without the edges and without the final picture of what it was going to be. And what our community was craving in particular was for somebody to put some edges around it and at least paint a little bit of a picture. And so Dr. Casey Rondello as our university epidemiologist. He spent a lot of time really with the community holding open forums, with the families, with students, with faculty, staff. We invited our alumni to join so that he could at least start putting a few of the borders around it as he knew them and his expertise in the community that he was a part of and helped start painting a picture And we started doing that in April of 2020 and did it every single month, multiple times a month if needed as things were changing so that we could help paint that picture and create at least a little sense of understanding and hope for where this might go. Did you actually use that metaphor of the puzzle when talking to your team about what you were trying to do or you did? I did, actually. I did. I did use that a lot. I said, you have to come up with creative ways to start solving problems when you don't have Mm -hmm. the end picture and you don't have the edges. And I think that's really what we were trying to do with the restart guide for the state of New York was to create a little bit of that stability and put some edges around it. And I would say that was really what we've been doing for the last two years is to really help our community understand how we could operate in a new environment. Yeah, I think it's a very powerful metaphor. And I really like the idea of how leaders are called upon to help define and not just identify, but create some of those edges. I actually have used the puzzle metaphor myself, and it's not that different. It goes like this. It's not a puzzle exercise much as a metaphor, which is the job of not just a leader, but almost anyone in any significant senior position with responsibility is to figure out what that puzzle is. So you have some of the pieces of the puzzle, but you don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. And sometimes competitors might have some of those pieces. Sometimes some of those are lost under some shelf. Sometimes somebody in your organization has a piece or two, but you don't know who's got it and where they have it. And by the way, some of those pieces are changing and nobody tells you when they change. And that really resonates with people. And now you're adding this edge part. I think it's good. I mean, one of the messages that comes out of the metaphor is 
You really do need to seek out information from all sorts of people and really manage that network. If you've got someone in your organization that's got a piece of the puzzle that you don't even know they exist, that's not a good idea. That's your job to maybe not directly know all 20,000 people, but to have a system where what that woman or man knows will be elevated to a place where it can be used. Yes, absolutely. Well, so I would do that and I would actually give them the actual puzzles. And and sometimes I would switch up the pieces as well in terms of putting some in <laughs> oh, their editor's bags and you'd make it a competition. And it was fun to see them throw it out there and go to their normal solution, which is to put the edges around it. And that didn't work. And then they'd have to think about negotiating for other pieces. So a lot of a fun exercise. But exactly to your point, it was to teach, to get people to really think about how you have to be creative in solving problems when you don't know exactly what the end game is going to be or you may not have have all of the information. And so it worked really well to deliver, I think, the message that you just talked about. And I think that the challenge and the opportunity in leadership is to really think about how you create those edges. And I would say the pandemic really put that to the test for many leaders. There's another place in higher ed where I guess the edges have changed dramatically, and that's the role of online and the rise of online education. And not just what universities themselves are doing. I'd be curious what you're doing and how extensive the online or remote learning is at, at Delphi. But we have Coursera. I actually just finished doing four courses for Coursera for the first time. And there's people around the world now that are getting my courses, a little different form than face-to-face, but still very impactful. I mean, there's Coursera, there's edX, there's Udemy, there's TEDx, Talks, there's Google, there's LinkedIn. There's so many MOOCs, there's so many online classes available. You can educate yourself without any of us in the professor world or academic world. And you can get a pretty decent education if you're disciplined and you know how to Google very well. (laughs) And so that raises a pretty significant concern and challenge for established universities. So I know you've thought about it. I'm curious how you thought about it and what you're doing. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that the pandemic, I think, really unfolded, and we did a lot of surveys and we had some external consulting groups do surveys as well. And I think the national data lines up with this. While you would think that everybody would now gravitate towards that self-directed online asynchronous learning because it's easy, it's fast, you can do it on your own time. What we heard is that the students really wanted to be in person and be with the faculty. The things that they missed the most during the pandemic was the discourse, having that conversation, being able to walk through problems, being able to hear the different perspectives and to really work with their faculty and with their classmates. And we heard that through all levels, through undergraduate, all the way up through our PhD programs. As we really look towards the future, I mean, obviously technology, we all rip the Band-Aid off and there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that. But I think based on our feedback from our community and our students, we'll use it so it's appropriate. And I think the faculty are using more videos and then they're bringing the students into the classroom to do actual problems and case studies and other types of activities that are the hands-on, the experiential learning. But I don't see, even though it's supplemental and there's a lot of programs out there, I don't see the in-classroom education going away or at least the smaller interactive online programs, which is a lot of what we do. If we do Zoom, our classes are usually 20 to 25 students max. I don't see us moving away from that going into a large scale system. When you have students that have done something that have opted to go to university and then it's taken away from them, I mean, we both understand, well, they know what they're missing and they get it. But then there's all these people that don't have the time, the money. I just didn't get around to it for whatever reason. And that's a big audience, potentially a big community for online education. 
It's interesting debate. It doesn't sound like you're overly concerned with this as a competitive force for you in the Delphi. Because as I mentioned before, the types of students that we're educating, I think, really want to come in and have the interactions with the faculty as well as with our other students, even our adult students, the degree completer students, what we would call the non-traditional adult market who maybe went and worked and then didn't get an undergraduate degree or started an undergraduate degree in community college and want to finish it. Those classes and many times will be online because that works with their schedule. And particularly here in New York with the traffic, they want to do something that's a little bit more convenient. But they also want to have the hands-on interaction with our faculty as well as our support staff. And we hear that very clearly from the populations that we're serving. Let's talk about you and your career path a little bit. I don't know that anyone grows up to say they want to be president of a university (laughs) or a provost or a dean, all of which you've done. So how did this career track? I know where it comes from. I know what happens. But then you jumped into it and you've excelled at it. And why is that? Because you were perfectly happy, I'm sure, to have been a leadership scholar and an academic and you had a big portfolio of things you were doing. So I'll tell you a funny story. When I was in high school, I was really good in math and science. And my mother was an elementary school teacher, had aspirations of becoming an elementary school principal, and my father was a college professor. So being the 16-year-old self, I said, I'm not going to do anything like my parents do. So (laughs) I'm going to go to Georgia Tech and took my SAT as a junior. They accepted me on that. And I was like, that was it. I'm going to go be an engineer. So I actually have an undergraduate engineering degree. And when I started working, I decided to go back and get my MBA in the evening. And what was interesting was some of my faculty really encouraged me to consider moving and on to a PhD. So I thought about it for a couple of years and then went on for my PhD and really fell in love with the profession, loved writing, loved researching. I really enjoyed having the interactions with the students and teaching classes and working with them and mentoring and counseling them. And so when I was at the University of Georgia, I started a leadership institute as an assistant professor. It's not anything that I recommend to anybody that is on a tenure track because I was quite busy And I began fundraising. So we actually ended up raising, I think, close to $10 million at the time for the Leadership Institute and began five different levels of programs. And as a result of that, I ended up getting recruited by TCU to start something very similar with them. And I went to TCU as a chaired professor and an associate dean. And then I also got funding for it, a new leadership program for them. And then had a really great conversation. I had two good mentors early in my career. One was my provost at the University of Georgia. And then the dean, my dean at TCU at the time, were fabulous mentors talking with me about my career path. And I think the biggest juncture for me was when I decided to take my foot out of academia being a faculty member and go right into full-time administration as a dean. And I knew once I went on to that path, I was having to step back from all of the faculty obligations that I had teaching and research that I knew that was probably the pivot point in my career that where I went full-time for administration. Maybe non-academics might not know, but once you make a shift like that, it's almost impossible to go back because you no longer have the time to do the research. I started writing, obviously, as president. I haven't had as much time, but as dean, one of the things I pivoted to was more popular press writing. So I did a lot of pieces for Harvard Business Review and Forbes and other types of popular press outlets, translating the leadership work that I had done previously. And I always try to look for a little bit of a quirky angle or a different angle so that people could use it. I continued to, I guess, fuel my creative writing side through those types of activities. But yeah, it was virtually impossible to do everything else as a faculty member once you moved full-time into a leadership role. It's funny you say creative writing because 
Somebody asked me the other day, what was my favorite course ever? I've done a lot of business courses and other things, but it was a creative writing class I did undergraduate. I think I got my lowest grade, in fact, in that, which, of course, I resented that from the professor out of you naturally. Of course. Academics are used to getting just about perfect grades for everything, and I didn't. But I learned a lot. I learned I wasn't going to be a creative writer in a traditional sense, but I learned I love to write. And it turns out that we have many avenues that I want to ask you something about this raising money as an assistant professor. What possessed you? Like, where'd this come from? I don't think I've ever heard of an assistant professor going to create a leadership center and then raising the money to do it. So I actually was put as part of a task force that the dean created. It was to come up with something that we could do around leadership. And that was really the general charge. And there was an executive from Coca-Cola who wanted to do something around leadership. That was about as defined as it was. So as you probably are well aware, we had many, many meetings just through the course of those meetings. I mean, I really understood what needed to be done and really understood the leadership field and what we could do at the college at that time. And so I ended up starting to draft a vision for what a leadership institute would look like. I started drafting what some programs would look like for our undergraduate students, for our master's students, as well as what a research consortium might look like. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon I kind of became the de facto chair of that task force. And as a result of that vision and that creation, I was asked to lead the institute. The executive from Coca-Cola was the first one to provide us with that time a $2 million endowment for the Leonard Leadership Scholars Program, which ended up getting named after him. And then from there, we just progressed. And I ended up talking with so many different donors. And because I had obviously crafted with others, the vision for the Institute obviously became the one that was helping mm-hmm. the Institute, as well as the money from people who were the benefactors. Well, it is a bit unusual or a lot unusual, but I'm hearing the story and I'm thinking, yes. if I was one of those tenured professors on that committee and I'm watching this younger woman who just can't let go and is so good that I would help her get to a position where she could take the credit and the lead is unusual because you're taking someone off of publishing. You can't publish at the same pace when you do something like that. On the other hand, you're opening a door or at least enabling, she's opening the door herself actually in the story, but you're enabling that to continue. Were there any other women in this committee? No, I actually, most of my career, I've usually been the first woman in many cases. And <laughs> a lot of times the only woman, I have to go back and think, I think out of a department of 25, I think there might've been three women at that time. And so I was definitely the only woman that was part of that committee. Well, there's a lot of things you just mentioned that give me different <laughs> directions to go, but I'm going to just say one thing about when you said meetings and lots of meetings in a committee. Of course, I know that you smiled. Everybody can see that smile right now, but you smile about that because we all know in academia, we love meetings, endless meetings, <laughs> and it's terrible. I was once an associate dean here in the business school and had some thoughts about continuing down that path. And the reason I didn't, well, there are a lot of reasons, including loving what I was doing and not willing to give that up. But one of the reasons was the meetings, the bureaucracy, the politics, and especially dealing with all those tenured professors, of which, of course, I am one as well, because they have so much power, the tenured professor. You can't fire them. In a sense, the dean or even the president works for them in some ways. 
So you figured this out. And so I'd like you to help me understand what I could have done if I went down this path. How do you manage powerful tenured professors who don't really have to listen to anything you say? I call it a legislative leadership model. I don't know that it's very different than the way that you navigate politics for the state, for the county, for the nation. And I think when you're really trying to accomplish things, then the challenge and the opportunity is, again, to try to find that shared goal, that shared commonality. And I think when you start talking about that, then you can more often than not get on the same page in terms of where you want to head and the direction. And so I think it's a lot of listening, a lot of conversation, creating those shared opportunities, making sure you have input. We just finished the strategic plan for Adelphi. I'm taking it to the board in June. And we started actually back in January of 21. And because the pandemic, we're mainly still remote. We did a lot of things online and then we brought it into the fall and had more forums. So we had more than 1,500 people participate in that, 69 different forums. So we just recently held our TED open town halls, hundreds of people coming to those. And we wanted to hear their input and hear their voice. And as we did the surveys and the feedback from those town halls and the strategic plan, very positive. But that's because we've spent this time really talking with people and making sure that we're hearing their voices and hearing their ideas and their thoughts around the direction that they think the university should go. And I think by creating those kinds of opportunities, you may not get everybody to buy into it at the end of the day, but you do get a large percentage of people who do feel very proud to be a part of a process and very proud to help set the direction for a university. How much of your time do you spend fundraising versus, I don't know, dealing with faculty versus other buckets that are really important for you? So it shifted, obviously, during the pandemic. I was spending a lot more time on the road and externally prior to the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, everybody was grounded. So as we're emerging from that fully, I'll be spending more than 50% of my time externally. And that's with corporations, with alums, with other people who we want to build relationships with, state, federal government officials. So I do spend a lot of time externally. And I have a great provost who works very closely with all of the deans as well as the faculty. I do attend every faculty senate meeting. Both the provost and I are members of the faculty senate, so we're staying connected that way. And then I also meet with the faculty senate officers at least once a month. I also meet with the student government officers at least once a month. And I hold open office hours uh, once a month as well for anybody in our community who wants to come and see me. And that's included parents as well as you know, our current faculty, staff, and students. When you talk to alums, corporations, in the context of raising money, you've been very successful at it, so you know how to do it. How do you ask people for millions of dollars? How do you do that? If you get to know them, it's all about relationships. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that if you have a strong relationship with somebody and you're talking about what's happening at the university and what's going on with the strategic plan and some opportunities, then it's a very easy conversation in many cases. So it's not that you walk into somebody's office not having met them and asked them for $10 million. It's usually a long-formed relationship where you get to know what their interests are. And you can talk about the impact and the legacy that they'll have and just how amazing that would be. And so it ends up becoming an easy conversation. That's so interesting. An easy conversation. This has got to be listened to by all would-be presidents of universities. <laughs> well, you have to be prepared for no. Uh, yes. You know, not that, or you'd be prepared for no. But if you have a good relationship, it doesn't change anything. You do have to be ready for that. It's like a lot of things, in fact. It's about building that relationship long before you think you need to ask for any favors or any such thing. And you're building it because it's meaningful and you're giving something to somebody else as part of that yes. process. 
I think the other thing too, Sid, that really makes a big difference is you're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for the benefit of the students or for a program or something that's going to make their degree, their alma mater even better and have that impact. And so because of the types of students that we're engaged with, so many of our donors and alums are passionate about helping other students succeed because maybe they had the help and weren't able to do it on their own. So I think a lot of it's just making sure that you're aligning what their passions and interests are with what the needs are at the university. You know, that expression from Hillary Clinton's book that it takes a village at this now kind of cliched, but I have found it to be as true as anything I've ever heard. You're making me think about it. And I want to ask you about it in a slightly different context, which is when you have students from underprivileged backgrounds or first ever to go to college, there's a lot they have to navigate. They might be smart enough to get in. They might be smart enough to manage the courses reasonably well, but they got to live. They have to interact. They need money for everyday things, not to mention tuition. You probably have some data on this, but I think that there's probably a higher attrition rate among students that don't have that built-in network and that history. The question is, is that true? And then what can you do about that to increase the odds that they're going to be not just graduating, but successful? So we spend a lot of time on support programs and making sure that students are aware of the support programs. So we have mentoring programs. We have programs that are dedicated for students that might have additional needs in terms of support of organizing their schoolwork, et cetera. So I think one of the things that we do a really good job of is when we're recruiting students is to let them know about all of the support. In fact, I actually was just speaking with a family prior to jumping on this podcast and talking about all of the surrounding support that we have for our students. I think also we try to make ourselves accessible. So if a student doesn't know where to go, they, well, my office, my office will handhold them and take them to an office to get that kind of support. It is something that we watch in terms of the numbers, like when students aren't retained, why are they not retained? Usually it's a financial reason is the number one reason. And then we try to see if there's things that we can do in terms of like a support grant, the president's scholarship that we do a big fundraiser for every year is dedicated towards helping students who are in their junior or senior year who may have not been able to do it financially so that they can finish their degree. It's really, I think, in many cases about that personalized approach with the students. And that's one of the things that, like I said before, really attracted me to Adelphi. We want every single student to succeed and we're going to try to help them do that as much as we possibly can. And sometimes we're not able to, but we do really create that personalized experience for them. Do you find that as you think about students in your role now, that some of the things you learned about leadership, that you studied about leadership, actually translate to this community? this population in particular? And if so, what would that be? The community of students or the entire community? Well, you know, the entire community, it would be your role as the president. And I think that's interesting. I'm also thinking about students because you're not the leader of the students in a traditional way that you would be, say, faculty and support staff. So it's not exactly the same. But I guess I'm just curious about the transferability of leadership skills across situations and across audiences or groups? They definitely transfer across all of the different audiences. And like I had said earlier, being president of a university is that mix between CEO and mayor. And when you really think about that role as being a mayor, 
I have 17-year-olds to 80-year-olds that are part of my community. And so my job as a leader is to really think about how do I relate and work with our undergraduate students or graduate students. And that's why I spend a lot of time with them as much as I possibly can. So I understand their needs, that they feel comfortable with me. Prior to the pandemic, I used to bring my English bulldog in to the office and she would bring donuts for the students and they would feed her green beans. But part of it was to make sure that they understood the president's office is not off limits and that it's not scary. Like I said, I spend a lot of time with the student leadership to hear their voices. I think the one thing that I would say is just the accessibility, I think, is very important. And from a leadership standpoint, where people feel like they can actually tell you something. I had a student, I was walking across campus and I had a student before the pandemic hit stop me and just say, hey, you know what? It'd be great to have a CrossFit facility. So I went to our athletic director and I said, hey, just got this suggestion. And we had an old squash court that was not being used. They had done a study, so they're able to take it and turn it into something that was useful. Sounds like a small example, but things like that, I think, really are important from a leadership standpoint is to really understand who you're serving really understand what their needs and their desires and make sure that you're communicating constantly with them. Because obviously you can't do everything that somebody stops you in the street to do, but these things have symbolic value. I mean, it's practical, but it has symbolic value as well. When I ask you about things you know or have done as a leader or even studying leadership, how it applies or how you use it, you have a TED Talk that is Dare to be Extraordinary. I love that title. We'll put it in the show notes or anyone wants to see it. It seems like that would be a very powerful message for students. Yes. Right? Yeah, I do find myself speaking a lot to the students, obviously, at matriculation and graduation, but then also just through various events. We had a wonderful women's leadership conference that we just held about three weeks ago. And so I was on a panel with some other amazing women. It was a great day that was just full of education. And it was wonderful to be able to talk with the students there. So as much as I possibly can, I get out and hold some of these forums. And when I can, I get invited to teach in somebody's class or be a guest lecturer in somebody's class. And I always enjoy that quite a bit. That makes sense. Topic of women and leadership. It's a never ending battle, of course. And it's a battle in terms of what has been called the glass ceiling, but it's a battle also with respect to compensation. And the number that I saw recently was maybe it's the most up to date. I'm not sure. 82 cents on average women are paid 82 cents to men. So I have a daughter who's in the workforce and it infuriates me to read that. I knew there was something, but 82 cents, that's enormous. Even if it was 98, it's wrong, but that could be rounding error. 82 is no round here. So what's going on here? I mean, you've been involved as a spokesperson in many organizations and obviously as a woman president of public and an important institution. What's going on? Like, why does this persist? I think a couple of reasons. I actually just was on a panel for my alma mater where we talked a lot about this because it's something that I'm really passionate about. So you can invite me back and we can have a whole hour on this topic. But I think a lot of it has to do with the systems and the practices that companies have in place or organizations have in place. If you bring in two people at the same time and you have a man and a woman and you both offer them $60,000 a year and the man negotiates and you raise him to $67,000 a year, but you don't raise her and they're doing the exact same position, is it her fault or is it the company's fault? And I would argue that it's actually the company's fault. If you're not constantly looking at compensation and looking at the equity within your compensation system, whether it's through promotions or how people are starting out, as well as through the raises that you're giving them, then you're not doing your job. So during the pandemic, actually, well, just last year, this past year, 
as a university, we made a commitment. We did a full-blown equity study and compression study within the university. Every single faculty member and every single employee went through this study. We had an external firm do it for us. And we told our community, we're committed. If we find any differences, if we can't do it in one year, then we'll do it over a course of two years. But we are committed to making up for any gaps that we might find. And so when they did the statistical analysis, they said basically within a two standard deviation, there are no differences. And I said, okay, I don't want to use two standard deviations. I want to go down to a half of a deviation. So let's go down to that level and let's really make it equal. Make sure that we'll eradicate any kind of differences that may have occurred over the years and make sure that we are paying all of our people accordingly. So I think that until companies really take it on as part of their culture and that they have as a value that they want to be equal, that's part of that diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, until companies really take to heart the equity portion of it, you're not going to see that gap close. I had a guest on the podcast not that long ago, Christy Wallace, who is the CEO of Elevate, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest organization focused on exactly not just compensation, but creating supporting networks for women in business and any organization. When we were talking about this issue, she said that the key thing to do, the key goal should be transparency, which sounds like what you were getting at with what you were doing. And transparency is important because there could be a dozen reasons why these two people that started at the same time, a man and a woman, after 10 years, end up with a significant difference in compensation. Could be what you said, that one negotiated more than the other, which of course gets multiplied over time. It could be lack of opportunity for the bigger job for a woman because someone had some assumption about it. I mean, it could be all sorts of things. While you want to try to tackle those things, they're tough to tackle because they're endemic. But when you look at the data and the data show you, they say, okay, we'd like to fix behaviors. We're still working on it, but now we could fix this because we've obviously, for whatever reason, maybe through no fault of anyone, which is unlikely, but maybe through no fault of anyone, we've got this situation. And so transparency becomes kind of like a secret sauce here, I think, that can make a gigantic difference. And when she said that, and you've kind of said a similar point, it's an eye opener because you could get a little tired thinking about all the different steps and things you have to do. There's a lot of sensitivity training that goes on in organizations. It's not clear that actually has a positive impact. There have been some studies to that effect that it doesn't make a big difference. So it's really hard work. It is. You have to be very intentional about it. Just as we talked earlier, to do all of the work around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, you have to be intentional. And if you're not intentional and systematic about it, and if you're not asking yourself the hard questions and wanting to look at the data, you don't make the kind of progress that you need. And I think it really requires leaders to take a stand on it and say this is something that we value at this company, at this organization, at this university. And we want to make sure that we're paying attention to these numbers and to the data and then changing it and doing something about it. You've studied and practiced leadership for a long time. People ask me this all the time, and I'm going to ask you. It's not that I like the question so much, but it does raise some interesting things. The question is, what are the most important attributes or behaviors for effective leadership? And you know, there's a lot of things we could put in that list. But I'm curious about what you would say would be top of that list of things that are critical for effective leadership. I'm going to give you the age old adage of it all depends because you really have to look at the situation. But the one thing that I talk a lot about, I'm actually writing a book called Shift Happens, How to Adapt and Thrive in a Rapidly Changing World of Work. And it was based on my work at, prior to going into leadership full time. I also was an executive coach and had a very robust kind of coaching practice. So probably coached more than a thousand executives at this point in my career. But one of the things that was fascinating to me was why would somebody, when they're promoted ostensibly for their performance, why were they 
failing so often in leadership roles. And the whole premise of the book is really about adaptability and how you develop that skill of adaptability. Because as a leader, you're going to find yourself in so many different situations. And if you just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, for every single situation, it's not going to work. Jobs are changing so quickly. Organizations are changing so quickly. So to me, the number one capability that a leader has to have is adaptability. I have to say I'm a believer in that, except that it's really hard. It is not an innate skill. Intellectually, it's not that hard to get it. Yeah, you have to adjust. You have to adapt. Of course you do. Who doesn't get that? But emotionally, it's a lot harder. And there's a lot of reasons for that, too, because the experience that we have as individuals, leaders, the stuff that gets us into this great job we have now is not necessarily the right set of skills, capabilities, experiences, mindset, or let's say not the only one that you need to rely on. And it requires you almost to say, okay, I've done all these things. I know how to do this and this, and I want to rely on that. But I have to recognize that there's got to be something else that I have to be open to. Maybe even changing some of those things that got, that's kind of a hard thing emotionally. It is. I think you've read chapter four in my book. (laughs) That's exactly right. I always say it like a can do and a will do type of a situation is that even if somebody has the capabilities to do particular jobs, if they don't have the right mindset, they're not going to be successful. And you can plot people on this four square matrix of saying, you know, the ones that are going to be the most successful are the ones that have the skills to do it and have the mindset to do it. And then obviously everybody else in the different buckets are more varied. Variable. The more that you recognize it's really a mindset shift before you can actually be successful, that's the number one key in many cases. And you look at so many entrepreneurs who weren't capable of taking their companies from startups to major corporations and you see leadership changes because the life cycle of the organization changed. And there's very few rare ones that have done it. They've been able to adapt very successfully throughout all of the different transitions that occurred with their company to continue in those leadership roles. It does require a lot of courage, doesn't it? It does. Absolutely. It does. And, you know, a lot of energy, I think, as well. And self-awareness. You have to say, okay, this situation has changed and here's how I now have to be different. And that takes courage. It takes energy and it takes that awareness to be able to do that. Self-awareness is something that a lot of people have talked about and both you and I, no doubt, have spent a lot of time thinking and talking to people about that. Probably a big part of your coaching practice. How can somebody become more self-aware? Hey, I'm ready. I want to be self-aware. Show me how to do it. What you advise or have seen or have done for yourself to help on that path? I identify what I call these inability to adapt traps, which is like these kind of personal barriers that prevent us from understanding we need to be different. And a lot of those really have to do with hearing and internalizing information. Quite frankly, many of the executives that I was coaching had been given feedback. They just didn't hear it or they didn't internalize it, or they didn't get the feedback even from a situation. They didn't read it. What I always say to people that I coach is you have to really listen and pay attention to what it is that people are saying to you or what the environment is saying. And then really sit down and reflect on that. And you're asking yourself, based on that information, how do I need to be different? Until people start listening or being open to receiving the feedback, then they won't be able to change. I agree completely about the feedback point where you're adding that I think is really important is a lot of people, especially as you go in and up in an organization, get lots of feedback. But it's one thing to get it. It's another thing for it to be internalized. So you start to think about it and do something about that. There's a big difference, I think. And maybe I always say you can listen to it, but you have to really hear it. And you have to really say, I want to understand. And if you don't understand it, then you seek clarification. 
as you said earlier, you have to have courage to do it because you have to be pretty vulnerable to say, I really want to understand what it is that you're trying to tell me and how I need to be different and help me understand this. And then you have to seek out that level of understanding. So then you can decide if you want to change or decide how you need to change. Being open to being vulnerable is a hard thing to do when you're the boss. So this is in a sense ironic in that if there's a masculine and feminine trait, there are many differences, but just demonstrating vulnerability is going to be on the feminine side more than masculine. On the other hand, women, because of various ingrained issues that exist in organizations may be more hesitant to display a vulnerability because they need to show that they can stand up and do it. What do you think about that challenge? There's some great, great articles on this, Sid, and it really is in many cases a double-edged sword for women, I think, in terms of the types of characteristics. And again, it goes back, I always tell women to really pay attention to the culture of the organization that you're going to work for or work with. If that culture is open, if you see women in positions and things like that, then I think you are more likely to be able to be authentic. What you're really getting at is, can a woman be authentic in a leadership position? Can she be who she really is? And it depends. There are going to be some organizations where the answer would be no. There are going to be many organizations where the answer is yes. So whenever I talk with women about their next steps or what they want, it's really about the type of organization you're joining. Can you be authentic? And if you can't, then can you endure that? Or find a way to go to somewhere where you think you can have that opportunity. Easier said than done for many situations, but something that I think should be on the table. I mean, today for young people, it absolutely is. Nobody stays anywhere for any length of time. I talk even in my book about if you think you're going to go in there and change the organization, unless you actually are the CEO, you're likely to have a minimal impact. So if you're feeling kind of this discomfort and lack of fit because you're not able to be who you are, then that's a sign that you probably should start looking for another position with a company that's a better fit for you personally. So I have one more kind of the wrap up question, although the question could be complicated. I've talked about imposter syndrome with some of my students and elsewhere. It was very interesting in one of my MBA classes last year, the class was on Zoom. And so we were using a lot of blog posts as another form of communication because these were graduating students, average age, 28, 29 years old. The prompt was, what are you most concerned about as you reenter the workforce? There were things around building relationships with people in a remote environment, of course. There are various things. But there were a couple of people that talked about imposter syndrome. There were actually three or four. They were all women. You could also comment on each other's blog posts. And that started to trigger a lot of conversation, mostly from women. So have you ever felt that with everything you've done? Imposter syndrome? And what do you advise to other women or anyone else to deal with it? I was asked this question on that other panel that I served on. And the question was phrased a little bit differently. It was asked, if I could go back to my 21-year-old self, was there any piece of advice that I would give myself that I wish I had known back then? And I actually talked a lot about how many of us operate from a place of fear. And when you operate from a place of fear, a fear of being an imposter, a fear of not being good, enough, a fear of failure, a fear of letting somebody down, a fear of being fired, a fear of being found out, you operate very differently than if you operate from a place of courage as well as confidence. I think a lot of times we achieve things because we're afraid, kind of gives us that extra energy, that extra boost, but it also holds us back. And when you talk about imposter syndrome, it's really fear that really needs to be addressed. Get to the roots of what your fears are. And once you start saying them out loud or you start thinking about how to manage those fears, then you can quickly get past that imposter syndrome. So my advice to myself 21 years ago would have been, don't be so afraid. 
women and men who don't put their names in the hat for jobs that they want or they don't go for promotion or they don't ask somebody to go to lunch or make that interview call or whatever they want because they're afraid of no or rejection. And once you put fear in its place, then I think that you approach jobs and careers and life a lot differently. That question on advice to yourself is exactly what I like to ask as well. And I think you've managed to segue into that. When is this book going to be ready? I am just wrapping up the final pieces of it. So I'm hoping sometime in 23. In 23. There's another thing most people, civilians don't know how long it takes, even in the digital era, (laughs) for a book to see the light of day. It's kind of crazy. But that'll be one we'll want to look out for. Chris Reardon, thanks so much for being on the SIDCast, for sharing your experiences, your advice, your lessons, and your journey with all of us. Thank you. It was wonderful being here with you today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.